0: take a copy of God's Word out. Remain standing as Pastor Logan comes and we will read God's Word together. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just." Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious morning. We thank you for this glorious passage. We thank you for your glorious Son. Father, as we hear now his words spoken afresh we pray that our hearts would be attuned to the truths therein we pray father that you would come and meet with us through the preaching of the word of god we pray father that the hearts of your people would be turned towards the son of god and we pray father that those who are here who don't understand these things or have not put their trust in christ Lord, that their eyes would be open to their need of a savior and that they would trust in Him today. So Father, would you come now and be honored and glorified in this place, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. I hope you all were as blessed as I was last week by digging into the nature of the atonement and the Jewish sacrificial system and what that tells us about our once-for-all sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. I certainly was blessed by it. I do have to say that Paul is bolder than I. When I am preaching a one-off, the the book of Leviticus has never crossed my mind, (laughs) not even once. Maybe one day, we'll see. But today, as we shift gears and we return back to uh, the Gospel of John and our study through it, we are jumping back into this discourse that Jesus gave in response to the Jewish leaders and their accusations against Him. And if we could sum up His purpose in all of this, in verses 19 through 47, what He is doing is He is confronting these men to get them to wrestle with the most important question that anyone could ever wrestle with, and that is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man? Now, as simple of a question as that is, there is no more significant question than one could ever answer than that one. It is a question of infinite and eternal proportions. And for this reason, it's a question I would commend to you in evangelistic conversations and encounters. Simply ask somebody who Jesus is, what they believe about Jesus, and then let them answer. You, may, you might be surprised at the doors that God will open with such a simple and straightforward question. But for us, the reason why this question matters so much is because all of our eternal hopes are resting upon the answer to this question. You cannot separate what Christ has accomplished and what Christ has promised to those of us who believe from who He is. The reason He was able to achieve what He achieved and He was able to promise what He promised is because of who He is. No one else could ever qualify to carry out his assignments or to make these kinds of promises unless that person was, in fact, God himself. And as we will see today, that's exactly what he's explaining to these Jewish leaders so that they will understand both his mission and his offer of eternal life. If you remember, this whole controversy began when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda and he healed a man who was an invalid. A man was likely a, a paralytic, and he was so for 38 years. And the Jewish leadership, rather than responding in awe and thanksgiving to God for this man's newfound restoration after 38 years, rather they are angered. Because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. In response to their anger, Jesus says to them in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And as we discussed last time, that statement was loaded with all kinds of implications. Jesus was both claiming God's prerogatives as His own prerogatives, and He was claiming to share in the same nature as the Father. And the Jews understood it. They understood it perfectly. So verse 18 makes it clear that they now sought to kill him for the charges of both Sabbath-breaking and for blasphemy. And to respond to their wicked intent on his murder, Jesus gives this discourse on who he is, why he came, and the evidences of his claims. This is likely the most important discourse in all of Scripture when it comes to Jesus' self-revelation, when it comes to who He is. As I read to you last time we were together, J.C. Ryle said of this passage, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and his, the proofs of His Messiahship. As we find in this discourse, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. And indeed, it is. In making this statement, Ryle did a a fine job of summarizing the three main elements and structure of this discourse. His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship. Now, the last time we were together, we looked at His own unity with the Father in verses 19 and 20. Today, we're going to begin that middle section of His divine commission and authority. Now, I had intended to do all of this in one sermon, but I'm sure you're used to this by now as things go. There's just too much there to squeeze it all together. So today, we're just going to look at His divine commission uh, found in verses 21 through 24, which means I kind of got ahead of myself with that title because we won't even get to the verse where the resurrection of the the dead on the last day. Really, this message should be entitled The Divine Commission of Christ because that's what we're looking at. And there's four parts to this. There's four parts to this divine commission that we're going to see in verses 21 through 24. We're going to see His two responsibilities. We're going to see one glorious purpose for it all. And we're going to see one gracious promise to those who believe two responsibilities one glorious purpose and one gracious promise and as we look at this we have to keep in mind that this was a response to the jews who were looking to kill him for making himself equal with god and instead of sidestepping that charge or trying to bring clarity to alleviate it jesus makes it worse and as we will see as we look at his claims and we look at the, this commission of his, the only way anyone could have claimed these responsibilities is if they were, in fact, God. And for us, there is assurance here to be had. The promises of our salvation are not flimsy hopes. They are resting on the solid rock of who Christ is. His deity entitles him to assure us of our security. What he has said will come to pass because of who he is. And there is rest to be had in that, dear Christian. But let's look at this. Let's look at how he builds this out and explains his commission Let's look at the divine commission of the Son, starting with these two responsibilities. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So right away here, Jesus is continuing and illustrating what he started with at the beginning of this discourse, which is what we looked at last time in verse 19, that the Son does whatever the Father is doing. Jesus was pressing his essential unity of the Father and the Son to show that the works that he is working are, in fact, the work of a father. He was not working independent of the Father, as they supposed, nor was he departing from the will of the Father. He was actually exacting the will of the Father on earth. So the healing of the 38-year invalid on the Sabbath was not only the work of the Son, but it was the work of the Father through the Son. Which is part of the reason why Jesus is First response to the accusation of his Sabbath breaking was, my father is working until now, and I am working. Because as he said, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And this is ultimately what his divine commission is, is all about. It's what it boils down to, or it could be summed up as, is to carry out the will of the father, as we have discussed many times. Now that does not mean that he's working contrary to his own will. No, it was the, the will of the, Son of, the God, of the Son of God to carry out the will of the Father. They worked together in concert. They worked together in perfect harmony. What these guys had already witnessed was the Father and the Son working in concert. The Son carrying out the Father's will in keeping with His own will as they function in harmony. It's Jesus' told these guys at the end of verse 20, beyond what they had witnessed, which was a power to heal just at the mere voice of Christ, he told them that the Father was going to show the Son even greater works. Meaning the Son would be working the Father's greater works at some point. Why? So that you may marvel. The question is, What works would be beyond what they had already seen? Well, that's exactly what these two responsibilities are that he explains. And they are the giving of life and the execution of judgment. First, let's look at the giving of life. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now, I honestly wish I could have been there. When Jesus made these statements, I'm sure mouths were gaping open as people tried to process this whole thing. And it starts right here with this statement. Because for the Jew, it was just an accepted reality that God was the only one who could raise the dead and give life. According to the Old Testament, this was the sole prerogative of God alone. Life belongs to God. In Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-nine, God said this. He said, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God was very clear on life being His prerogative. According to the Scriptures, life and death are God's power at work. And for a Jew, this was just a no-brainer. This was an accepted reality. This was a part of their cultural understanding of how the world works. You see this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was praying in thanksgiving for God, having opened her womb and giving her the child Samuel, she prayed this in her prayer. She said, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, And he raises up. It's just a part of their thinking. It's a part of even their response and prayer. In 2 Kings 5-7, when Naaman came to the king of Israel to ask for healing from leprosy, the king responded with kind of a visceral response. And he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? So even his reactive response was to affirm this truth that life and death is in the power of God. The power of life was simply understood to be the sole prerogative of God. No one else can exercise that power. Now, there was an exception in the Old Testament. And the only exceptions were that of Elijah and Elisha. And they were both prophets of God who shared the same mantle. And each were recorded to have raised the dead in different instances. But the difference there was that they were doing so as God's instruments. They did not do this according to their own power or according to their own will. They did so according to in carrying out the power of God. So even there, the Jews understood that to be God's power at work, not merely Elijah's power or Elijah's power. But what Jesus is claiming here. Is altogether different. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. He's not only claiming to have the same power and the same prerogative of God over life, but He's claiming to be able to do it according to His own will. Now you may think, well, wait a minute, I thought He was carrying out the Father's will. He undoubtedly was. But again, it was His will to do the Father's will. His will is so wrapped up with the Father's will that they are essentially one. And yet Jesus is saying, on some level, there is some autonomy to His decisions. Though that autonomous decision that He would make, according to His will, would operate always in perfect concert with the Father's will. That's why, on the one hand, He says, "...the Son can do nothing of His own accord." But here he says he gives life to whomever he will. The point being is that the will of the Father and the Son are so completely unified that the Son can act according to his will and in so doing he will never violate the Father's will. They are one. So Jesus himself has the prerogative and the power to give life according to his will, according to his will. His choice. Does that sound familiar? He has the power and the prerogative to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Exactly what God told Moses on the Holy Mount. Jesus claims to be able to distribute that same electing grace and power of God. And he had just illustrated that on a physical level. He had gone to the pool of Bethesda where John intentionally notated back in verse 3 that there was a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people. And out of that mass of invalids, Jesus walks in there and he chose to heal one. He did not heal anyone else there. In fact, it says he disappeared into the crowd after that one healing. He chose one, according to His own will and for His own divine purposes. It was a physical display of His spiritual power and His prerogative. Because that's what He's speaking about here when He says life. Jesus is speaking about spiritual realities. The, the life that's being referenced here, that He gives according to His own will, is eternal life, not just physical Life, And that's why he mentions the Father raising the dead. In the Jewish mind, to think of the resurrection of the dead is to think of the eschaton, to think of the, the end of all things. It is to think of the resurrection that is to come in the new order. And the life that Jesus is giving to whoever, whoever he will is resurrection life. It's eternal life. And that is a far greater miracle than a physical healing, or even a physical resurrection, as he will demonstrate with Lazarus. But the fact is, after Lazarus rose from the grave, Lazarus died again. And so did the 38-year invalid. They both died. But if you have received this life from Christ, you have received Resurrection life of an eternal nature. Life that will permanently overcome the grave and will dwell with God forever. And that was part of his mission. That was part of his commission from the Father to give this life to whomever he will. And his miracles were meant to point and demonstrate his power and ability to do this. That's what his first advent was all about. His first coming was all about distributing this life, bringing this life to save a people from their sins and to give them life. As he'll say in John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that is still what he's doing to this day all over the world is people come to faith in Jesus Christ. This work has not ended. This is still going on. Hopefully, this very hour. But then there's a second responsibility of what God the Father has commissioned the Son to carry out here, which will ultimately take place. It is Second Advent, it is Second Coming, and that is judgment. Look at verse 22 For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, we just have a a total mind-blowing, mind-bending statement being issued here from Jesus, where Jesus is again claiming that which belongs to God alone to be His responsibility. God as judge is actually an obvious and intrinsic understanding, not just of the Jewish heart and mind, but of every heart and mind. I mean, how often have you heard someone whether a Christian or, or an unbeliever even, defend their actions and say something to the effect, only God can judge me. And sadly, often those who make such claims do not realize the gravity of what they are saying. Because on an eternal level, that's absolutely true. On a temporal, level, that, a temporal level, that statement's not true. Because God has delegated authority to judge in, in three different ways. In civil matters, he's delegated it to the state. In domestic matters, he's delegated that to parents, and specifically to fathers as the heads of their home. And in ecclesiastical matters, he's delegated that to the church. Judgment happens here on earth now in a temporal nature, so it's not necessarily true that only God can judge you. But on an eternal and final level, it's absolutely true. And that should be a terrifying statement to anyone who would make it. Judgment will be rendered with perfection of both deed and motive. Every thought of the heart will be brought before the throne of God. Yes, only God can do that, and God will do that. Every single soul who has ever lived will stand before Almighty God to give an account for their life, and He will judge them for it. As the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Ten out of ten people will die, and ten out of ten people will then face judgment. And the Jews absolutely understood this. This is not even a question in their minds. Rabbinic literature is full of the affirmation that God is judged, that God will judge the world. That was just the default thought and understanding of Israel in the Old Testament. Genesis 18, Father Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Or Psalm 75, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Psalm 50, and the heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. Isaiah 66, 16, For the Lord will execute judgment by fire with His sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. The Jews understood God as judge. There's no confusion there. And I think everyone understands that. I think it's written upon the conscience of man that He owes an account to His Creator. But what Jesus is saying is that responsibility is His. It's been given to Him. It's been given to the Son. What that means is when you find yourself standing before Almighty God in judgment, you will find yourself standing before the Son. Standing before Jesus. That's what He says. The Father judges no one. But has given all judgment to the Son. Now, that does not mean that the Father is in no way involved in judgment. Jesus already said that He does nothing apart from the Father. So, what does He mean by that, that the Father judges no one? He just means that God has assigned His Son to be the direct agent for all judgment. It is this, to the Son to whom the world will be held accountable by the appointment of the Father. Paul said the same thing in his sermon at Athens at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. How? By a man whom He appointed. So clearly the Father is involved in judgment. He's going to judge the world, but not directly. The Father directly judges no one. He's going to do it through Christ. And on that day the day of judgment, many will be surprised to find themselves standing before a fellow man who will judge their everlasting soul. The God-man. Christ Jesus. And here, that very man is standing before these Jews, the judge of all the earth, being judged and accused of breaking the Sabbath, his own law, and for blasphemy and in response to their judging him, he declares to them that it is he who will judge them and everyone else, the entire world. It is for this reason that understanding Christ as, as judge, when we think of that, the concept of the fear of the Lord, and we should, we should fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not wrong. And more than that, it is entirely appropriate to be thinking of Christ as that Lord to whom we should fear. It would have served the Jewish leaders well if they heard these words and feared the one they were standing before, rather than treating Him with malice and evil intent. They should have been bowing down before Him in reverential fear. Because this man is the one who has given them physical life. This man is the one who is currently upholding their physical life. He sustains their life. And this man is the only one who can bestow eternal life. And this man is the one who will judge them and everyone else. They ought to be exalting Him, not persecuting Him. That's exactly what they should be doing, and that's exactly the purpose of all of this. The Father has commissioned the Son to these things, the giving of life and the execution of judgment for this supreme purpose that He may be exalted. Look at the text. Look at what He says. Look at verse 23. What is all of this for? What is the purpose that all may honor the Son... Just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The purpose of all of this is that the Son may be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. Now this, this kind of statement right here is why you cannot read the Bible and conclude that Jesus was just a good teacher or that he was just merely a prophet as the Muslims tried to claim. He does not leave you that option. That is both an illogical and an impossible conclusion to make. C.S. Lewis nailed it when he gave his famous Trilemma. He said that every living soul is in a trilemma as it pertains to what we make of who Jesus is. It's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma because there's only three logical possible options. Either one, he is a liar, making him perhaps the most evil deceiver to ever walk the earth. And as the Jews would accuse him of, saying that he is working of the, the power of Satan, that would absolutely be true if he was a liar. How else would he do the things that he did? Or, if that's not it, then he's a lunatic. This is a crazed man who believes himself to be something that he's not. Someone who's just completely delusional, who should have been locked away, akin to many lunatics who have thought themselves to be God throughout the ages. But even worse, because of the global impact that Christ has had. This seems to me to be the most illogical of the three, given his undeniable wisdom found in his teachings and the power of his miracles. I don't think he can be easily dismissed as just a mere lunatic. But the third option is that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be, which is Lord. That's all you get. He's either a liar, he's lunatic, or he is... Lord, there is no other option because you cannot make a statement like this and just be a mere prophet or a good teacher. That's, that's an illogical conclusion to come to. If he's not Lord, this is blasphemy. Good teachers don't blaspheme. Prophets don't blaspheme. To say something... That With as much gravity that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father? Who could say that? God says He shares His glory with no one else. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. The fact is, Jesus is the Lord of Isaiah 42, 8. And this is the ultimate purpose of His ministry, of His commission. The ultimate purpose was not about your salvation. It was about His exaltation. To reveal who He is to the world and the glory of God to be revealed to the world through Him. This is what the the Christ hymn in in the book of Philippians is all about. Showing the God-man Jesus Christ to be the Lord of glory. Philippians 2 "'Though he was in the form of God, "'did not account equality with God, "'a thing to be grasped. "'But he emptied himself.'" Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is no mere prophet. The same honor that is due to the Father is due to the Son. And that is why you cannot honor the Father if you do not honor the Son. The Father commissioned his Son for the creation and redemption of the world. Do you really think that someone can reject the one he sent to be exalted with a name that is above every name and still make a claim that their life or their religion honors God? No. No way. Never. God will never accept any worship or any honor that disregards his Son. Never. Never. You cannot get to God apart from His Son. You cannot have reconciliation or forgiveness apart from His Son. You cannot have heaven or eternal life apart from His Son. If you don't have the Son, you have nothing except a fearful Expectation of judgment, which will be executed by the Son. This is why Jesus explicitly said, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And remember who he's speaking to Jewish leaders, Pharisees, those of the strictest religious order. Those whose entire lives were bent and constructed around God. Down to the tithing of tiny herbs. And yet they did not honor Him. Because they did not honor the Son. As Paul says in Romans 10, They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And this is not just true for Jews. It's true for Mormons. It's true for Jehovah's Witnesses. It's true for Muslims. It's true for Oneness Pentecostals. It's true for all Unitarians. And it's true for every other pagan religion that does not exalt the person of Jesus Christ as Lord. The Son must be honored just as the Father. That's where everything is heading, that's where everything is moving. That is the great and grand glorious purpose of it all. In fact, John the Apostle, the writer, was given a vision of that end reality, which is recorded for us in his other book, the, the book of Re- Revelation. Chapter 4 of Revelation, John is taken up to the throne room of God, and there he sees the one sitting around on the throne. And around the throne were 24 elders, and along with them around the throne were four living creatures like nothing They can even be described, nothing we've ever seen, nothing we've ever imagined. And all of them are falling down before the throne and worshiping the one who was seated upon the throne, saying this, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then, after that scene, in parallel fashion, in chapter 5, John now sees the one seated on the throne and at his right hand is the Lamb standing as though he has been slain. And around the throne this time are those same elders and those same living creatures. But now there's countless myriads of angels there as well. And it says they sang a new song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The same honor as the Father. But then, in a final chorus, just a few others join in. Listen to who it now includes. Revelation 5.13, John says this, And I heard Every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. The Father and the Son Honored in the same way as the one true God who is worthy of all worship. That is the supreme and ultimate purpose of what Jesus was doing and why the Father sent Him. That's where everything is going. This was no small statement to say that the Son is to be honored just as the Father. These men were furious because he was, quote, making himself equal with God. And Jesus just takes away all doubt and speculation. He is equal with God, worthy of the same honor. But beyond that, he brings a massive and gracious promise to anyone who would believe that is based upon. The foundations of these truths. For anyone who will avail themselves of Christ. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Notice Jesus brings this out after he's declared his essential unity with the Father, his prerogative and assignment to give life to whomever he will, his assignment to judge the entire world, and his equal honor with God. This statement stands upon all of those truths. Now, why is that important to point out? Because this is the largest and most significant promise that has ever been issued to man. And yet, because of the one who made it, we don't have to question whether or not he can deliver, whether or not he can make good on his word. On the contrary, because of who he is, and because of who it is that sent him, this promise is more secure than anything you can imagine. We're not resting our eternal hopes on the so-called visions of a false prophet named Muhammad that took place alone in a cave in the 7th century. We're not resting our eternal hopes on the so-called golden tablets discovered by Joseph Smith, given to him by an angel and conveniently taken back by an angel. Two men who lived lives of utter sinfulness and promiscuity, And are not worthy to even have their names remembered. And yet Mormons and Muslims are banking everything on it. No, for us, we are resting our eternal hopes on the rock-solid promises of the sinless Son of God who came down from heaven. Declaring these truths out in the open. Not in a cave by himself. Verifying his identity with his divine power. And then confirming it all by rising from the dead. It is that man who's given us this glorious and gracious promise of verse 24, which is why his listeners then and his listeners now would do well to take his word seriously. He again reasserts the solemn formulation, "Truly, truly, adding weight to what he is saying. And he says, "Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal." Life. Notice he didn't, he didn't even say, whoever hears God's word, whoever hears my word. I mean, who speaks like this? Christ. Christ does. Whoever hears my words, that is a reference to the truth of who he is and why he came. Remember, that's what, what he said. He came to bear witness to the truth. He is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life the truth of himself. And along with that, we are to believe the one who sent him. Again, he puts himself in a conjunctive relationship with the Father because they are one. And whoever believes their testimony has eternal life. This is is infinite grace. Especially considering who he's speaking to. Men who wanted to kill him. Actively plotting to kill him. But yet, by extension, he's speaking to all sinners who have turned their backs upon God. And yet, he is still here, revealing the truth of who he is to them, and offering the grace of eternal life. And he expands what that means. He says, For the one who believes, he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. What a promise. This is for you, believer. And for anyone who will believe. If you trust in Christ and Christ alone, there is no judgment for you. By that, what is meant is there is no condemnation in judgment. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and several other passages make that absolutely clear. The Bible makes that clear. We will stand before Christ to give an account But for the one who is trusting in who he is and what he has done and what he has said, you will stand before him very differently. You will appear very differently. You will appear as one who has already passed from death to life. Notice the tense of the verb there. This is about what happens now. Not in the future at judgment. This is what happens now. When one believes upon Him, now they pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. They are born again. They are born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus just two chapters ago. They are those who have drunk from the well of living water. They have been made children of God, who worship Him in spirit and truth. And they are those who are robed in the righteousness of Christ and have been made alive. In Him. And so because of that, believer, you don't come into judgment in a condemning judgment. Your sins have already been judged. Your sins have already received the wrath of God. It's done. When did that happen? On the cross. Jesus bore it for you. It's over for you, believer, to tell us die. It's finished. You have no judgment ahead of you. Yeah, but I sinned pretty bad yesterday. There's no judgment for you. And Christ has given you his word on that. Well, then, should I sin all the more that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Romans 6. We have been created anew for righteousness. But when you sin, Romans 8 is still true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Rest in that, dear believer. There is no judgment for you. Rather, what you have ahead of you is an eternal inheritance, of eternal life. And the promise of these things rests on who He is. We who believe are standing on the solid rock of Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of you who you are not standing upon Christ, Jesus says, You are actually standing upon a foundation of sand that will not uphold on the day of judgment. Your righteousness is not enough. You will stand before Christ. You will give an account. You have no excuse not to believe upon Him. You have heard His Word. You have heard His promises. You have heard His warnings. And I urge you to flee from the wrath of God that is to come. You do that by believing upon His name. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You can do that now. You can do that in your very seat. You can pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins and trust in Christ. And He is faithful to do it. He died to pay sins penalty. He rose from the grave. And He is coming back. Trust in Him before it's too late. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for commissioning him to give life to whomever he will. Thank you that he is our judge. That the same one who saved us, who is merciful, who is gentle, is our judge. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for eternal life. Help us to keep our eyes upon Him and help us to proclaim this good news to those who don't believe it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.